any questions that uh, anyone has on their mind? Give us some tips for remaining mindful. <laughs> well, that is indeed the, the crux of the problem of the practice of mindfulness is remembering to stay mindful. And I'll give you one tip. And that's whenever you remember and become mindful, try to continue being mindful. <laughs> but you see, it's, it's exactly the same thing that we experience in meditation. And as a matter of fact, meditation is the training that helps us. Um, you sit down to meditate, you put your attention on the meditation object, and the next thing you know, it's gone. You go out in the world and you're practicing being mindful of your, of your thoughts and your words and your actions, and the next thing you know, You've forgotten all about it, so it's exactly the same thing. When you when you remember to be mindful, you reinforce that. Ah, thank goodness, I remember to be mindful. And try to maintain that mindfulness as long as you can. But one method that, uh, that I, a method that works really well to help you to uh, be mindful. Uh, is the practice of uh, daily reflection. And you begin by simply trying to, choosing specific things that you want to be mindful of. There may be certain emotional states that arise, unwholesome mental states, or it could be the practice of one or more of the perfections. But what you do in the process of reflection is once a day, you just simply remember those occasions in, in the last 24 hours when you, when first of all, those occasions when you did succeed in being mindful on those occasions and rejoice in that. And then you also call to mind those those occasions when uh, you know you should have been but you weren't, and that's the reminder. And so. The reason that you do that is if you do that kind of reflection regularly, after a while you will start remembering more often to be mindfulness. But also, the application of mindfulness, even retrospectively, is still effective. It still produces a result, not maybe not as powerful as a result of being mindful in the present moment, but it will lead you towards that. And so that's that's the best tip that I have to offer. And for those of you that have adopted the practice of keeping the book for six times a day, that is that is exactly that. It's a six times, instead of a once a day reflection process, it's a six times a day reflection process. And it is focused on specific vows uh, uh, that you've taken. But you could, if you're doing that, that should help you to be mindful. I mean, one of the effects that you should find from that is it causes you to be mindful in between. So, use if you're already in the habit of using the book, then you've already got a really powerful tool for helping you to become mindful. Um, I would just simply suggest that you extend it beyond simply whatever 
few vowels that, you know, in the daily reflection, you start off with one or two or three simple things that are your focus, but the idea is that you expand that so that it helps you to become mindful all of the time. It helps you to remember to be mindful all of the time. It's, it's that remembering part, the forgetting and the remembering. So you can use that that book as, as a great tool if you're used to using I could never get in the habit of doing something that often. But I did find that the daily reflection is, is really, that's a lot a lot more manageable for people like me that uh, could never remember to take a book with them or never remember to write in it or find it. So, you know, what am I going to say? <laughs> Uh, that's a very good question, Allegra, because uh, you know you can't, you know, you absolutely cannot underestimate the importance of this mindfulness or how it works. Um, and to practice mindfulness correctly, you want to be the objective observer. You want to see what's happening in this uh, uh, mental, physical uh, accumulation of aggregates that you are. You just want to see what's happening, but to see it clearly, and so without judgment, and without bringing I into it, you know, oh, I shouldn't have done that, or oh, I'm so bad, or oh, I'm so anything, great, bad. So the proper practice of mindfulness is, is being aware of what's actually taking place and taking that awareness to deeper and deeper levels. And the important, it, it does many things, but one of the important things that mindfulness does is that it provides feedback to all of those other parts of your mind as to what the consequences are of the activities that they initiate. And I can't tell you enough times that you do not have a mind, period. You have many different mental processes. Each one is relatively simple. It has a particular job to do and a particular uh, set of criteria by which it decides when to do its job. And of course, there's, it's hierarchically arranged so that there's simple mental processes whose job is to turn on and off other mental processes. But most of what you think of as your mind, I mean, pull a number out of the arrows. I would pull the number 99% is unconscious. It's unconscious mental processes. And the only feedback, those unconscious mental processes ever get is what you are consciously aware of. And the quality of that conscious awareness is going to determine the quality of the feedback. So if we choose a particular unwholesome mental state to apply our mindfulness to, the mental processes that produce that unwholesome mental state have been doing so for years. 
because their simple little program they operate on says, oh, when this happens and that happens, get angry or get sad or be afraid or, or whatever it is. And they keep doing that. And every time your consciousness, whenever that happens, and what is in your conscious awareness is the, oh, I am angry, that reinforces that mechanism. And then when you say, I am angry because he did this, then that prevents that any kind of association between the, that, that unconscious mental process that delivered up that emotion doesn't get the feedback that, oh, being angry makes me feel bad. Because if it did, it would be less inclined to generate anger more easily. Or if it got the feedback that the, uh, uh, the anger creates all kinds of problems, you know, but instead it gets fed thoughts that justify the anger. And so it's never going to change. It's just going to get stronger and stronger. It's going, to it's going to keep on doing that. All of our mental and emotional states are, they are constructs generated by some part of your mind whose job is to generate those in order to produce certain kinds of results. And what you want to accomplish is to restructure the way that comes about. So you've got to provide the feedback. You've got to look at how it makes you feel. You've got to look at the consequences. You've got to look at, uh, you've got to go to a deeper level and say, oh, this is coming out of desire. This is coming out of aversion. This is coming out of attachment to my sense of self. This is coming out of old programmed uh, at, uh, events from the past. You know, when you can see that, that settles into the deeper layers of your mind and you start finding that what happens in the future is changed by it. And that's how you, that's how you change your karma. To practice mindfulness is to have as clear, you want to have, you want to really see what's going on. There's that aspect of, uh, of not being fuzzy and vague, but to really see what it is and to uh, see it clearly, to understand it clearly. When you can when you can see what's going on, and the clarity means what obscures it. See, clarity is the lack of obscuration, and what obscures it is all that stuff you usually do, uh, blaming somebody else or something else, or justifying it in your mind. Or, in, in other words, in one way or another, seeing it for what it, other than what it really is. Everything that happens to you, every mental event, is a construct delivered up by your mind as a result of past programming. 100% true. That's, there is outside, there, there is no experience you have that isn't shaped by unconscious mental processes. So when you apply this clear, vivid, mindful awareness to what is actually happening in this moment, you provide the feedback that allows those processes to change in a positive way and to begin to free you from the kinds of problems that you've experienced before. Also, the practice of mindful awareness, the other thing that it does, 
in addition to being a, a nice way of reprogramming the computer, you know, and uh, doing instant psychotherapy to help get rid of all these, you know, without having to go and spend hours on the couch and everything, it's it gets right to the root of things and makes the corrections without you having to go through so much in between. But the other thing is, as your mindfulness becomes clearer and clearer, as you are more and more seeing things as they really are, you start to discover those truths which dispel the wisdom, or dispel the ignorance, creates the wisdom and dispels the ignorance that is your problem. If you are really practicing mindfulness, you are going to be mindful of the processes by which you make decisions and you generate intentions. And one of the things you'll discover is that you don't actually make decisions and you don't actually generate intentions. It's all of those different mental processes with all their stored up stuff. That's what makes the decisions. They have different strengths and they have different objectives and so they have different points of view. So you are really more like a big executive committee and uh, your decisions are the result of, uh, you know that in a decision there's several things that get weighed sometimes, right? Well, that's what's happening. Uh, and when you think, oh, well, I've decided I'm going to do this. Well, you didn't. One of the things another part of your mind does is invent the story of who you are. And the storyteller, once the decision is made, and it happens after the decision is already made, the storyteller says, oh, I decided. And if somebody comes along and says, why? Well, the storyteller makes up a story about that. But if you pay attention, you find out, you find you start to see what's happening. You didn't make the decision. The decision arose. You didn't generate the intention. The intention arose. And the storyteller appropriates it as mine. This was my idea, my decision, my intention. And of course, something happens later on, you know, and the storyteller is saying, oh, why did I do that? <laughs> But you know, somebody didn't attend the executive committee meeting when the decision was made. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and that happens. That's why, that's why we make decisions we regret. Everybody wasn't in attendance at the meeting. So, so there, there, isn't a, there isn't a self in there making these decisions, and you can start to see it. Are you saying we don't have free will? Well, on the one hand, absolutely right, because there's no you to have free will. <laughs> but that does not mean that things are deterministic. If, if the intentions that arise are the result of all of these different influences, I, I really liked, you know, there's a little thing from the, uh, that series of movies that I called The Matrix. And in one of them, uh, I can't remember the guy's name. What, what's the hero's name? Neo. Neo. Neo, yeah. Neo gets to meet with a guy that's kind of behind the whole thing. And he says to him, you know, uh, 
all you are is a non-zero net sum of, uh, of you know, and, and this is what your intentions are in the moment. There's, you know, there's all these pluses and minus get added up, and if you do this instead of that, it's because that's the way it added up. Or if you did the other, it's because that's the way it added up. Uh, really think of them as as probabilities, because like I say, in any given instance, not necessarily everybody commits, attends the executive committee meeting. So there's a certain probability. What we call free will is the fact that there are times when it's when the vote is 50-50, you're very near 50-50. So it's impossible to predict. If it weren't, if it, was, if, it, if it never came out that way, then yes, everything you ever did and the way you reacted to it and everything else would be predetermined. But that's not the case. And fortunately, we have numerous opportunities to make, to change the makeup of our mind. The Buddha's advice was good companions and, and listen to good teachings. And that's the reason. If, if you put yourself in situations where the information that goes in is of a positive kind, then when the come, time comes to make a decision, it's going to, it's going to have an impact. It's going to play a role. If you had never put yourself in situations where you heard these Buddhist ideas, these Dharma ideas, they would not be available to influence the decisions you make and the intentions that arise. So how, how do I, as a karmically determined individual, alter the course of my destiny and move towards enlightenment rather than becoming more mired in the confusion of uh, delusion and samsara? I do it like by whenever you know uh, when it's when it's a choice between uh, the the uh, really rich chocolate cake and uh, uh, hearing a passage from the Dharma, you you, you know you, you might go for the chocolate cake. But fortunately, there's a lot of times when it's a choice between hearing the Dharma and hearing the latest episode of CSI, and it's easy to make, well, for some people it's easy to make the decision. Anyway, you get the idea. There's the easy times where you have a choice, you go this way or that way. And if you go the right way, often enough, it makes it more likely that you're going to go the right way in the future, and it just builds on itself, and so you, you create this change in direction. As your understanding grows, this becomes more and more powerful. Whatever you do in the moment becomes part of what determines how you're going to respond in the future. And just to give you an example of this, when you, if you have an emotion that arises like anger, the arising of that emotion, that's a result of the past. Some part of your mind has already been programmed. It, adds up what's going on. It looks at what's going on right now, and it says, aha, I'm supposed to make anger happen. And so it starts cranking out anger, and the system is flooded with feelings of anger. That's, that's the past result. And that, that's result of karma. 
the new karma comes, it first starts to come in that moment of reification that says, I am angry. That's new karma. That's an intentional act. Although, most of the time, that reification uh, throughout our lives has happened so easily and so rapidly. In other words, you know, the boat's been so strongly in favor of that reification that it's, that it's always happened, but it doesn't always have to happen. And whenever you can choose to recognize, this is where mindfulness comes in, this is how you practice mindfulness, you see, oh, there is anger arising, rather than thinking, oh, I am angry. Because if you think, oh, I am angry, you're making the wrong kind of karma. If you see, oh, any anger is arising, you're making the right kind of karma. Okay? And then uh, most, of our, most of our intentions are actually quite complex. And so it's not the intention arises and everything comes out of it. It's a series, it, it, there's a series of actions. There's, there's the mental movement and the verbal movement and the physical movement and usually a whole lot of, a, a whole lot of different verbal and physical movements to carry out a typical intention. So at, in every one of those, there is the opportunity to interrupt the process. In every one of those, you can choose the, the intention arises as a karmic result, but you, when you reify it and say, I've decided, I'm going to, I intend, I want, when that, when that comes up, then that's where you're making the new karma. If you let go of it, you interrupt the process. If you, uh, and at first, in a given instance, you know, the, it's an unfolding over time. And maybe you can't let go of it enough times to keep something from happening and keeping some. But to the degree that you can succeed, you will lessen the impact, both the karmic impact in terms of the imprint it makes on your mind and the resultant impact in terms of whatever you do and the results that flow back from that. So uh, you just work towards increasing that to, so that you can do it more and more. Through the practice of mindfulness applied to any unwholesome mental state when it arises will create the opportunity to interrupt the process, to stop reinforcing it, to start... When you see things as they really are and you decline to reify the illusion, that's the process that I talked about, the theme that sinks into the deeper levels of your mind and changes those very processes that gave rise to the problem. So that's, that's, how, that's how this is happening. This is you, you're changing your karma in the future. But for mindfulness to work properly, it has to be unobscured. You have to learn to let go of the judgments and just, and just observe. Because this, this tiny 1% part of you where the consciousness is happening, and this is the only feedback. And you can either send a really clear picture or you can send a confused picture. So you try to send a really clear picture. So you learn to make your mindfulness as 
as unobscured as possible. Um, so you would say if you were angry at somebody and your anger came up, then as you thought about it, you, you feel this anger is arising, and then you would say, oh, that person is just very unhappy. It doesn't have anything to do with me. Exactly, yes. And so, so that's when you're shifting the inner process. That's right. What, what you'll notice if you start paying attention to your emotions is that they, they kind of come on and peak and then they tame down. They, can, they have a sort of an up and down cycle. And, and every time they come on, you have to deal with it all over again. So the first time it comes up, you could say, oh, that's anger arising and recognize what it is. And then it comes up again, and you could succeed in saying that again, or maybe this time you'll say, I'm just angry, that's, that's all. You know? And, and yeah, this is the kind of thing that really happens. But that subsides and it comes back, and maybe the clarity can come back. And it's, okay, I, I don't, this is, this is not good for me. I don't need to do this. And then if you keep being able, if your mindfulness stays on top of it, if your mindfulness lapses, you'll get carried away in the whole story. But if you can stay on top of it, you'll get to that place of, as you say, you see, okay, this is another suffering being just like me. And the only reason they're doing this is they're compelled to, the same way I'm compelled to experience this anger, they're compelled to, you know, and all they're trying to do is to escape their own suffering and find some happiness. And so you can, in that way, with, with enough awareness, the, the story that supports the anger falls away and a different story arises, a story that supports compassion and understanding and forgiveness. And you don't feel sick. And you don't feel sick. You don't feel sick to your stomach. You don't, you don't spend hours afterwards wrestling with all of this crazy stuff. You know. <laughs> but, the, but the reality of it is, you know, and I know it's been pointed out to me that in these Dharma talks, we're sort of talking at a, uh, it, it sounds really theoretical. You bring it down to the concrete, real life instant, and uh, with the whole range of emotions we have, and the mental states we have, to the extent that there is anything unwholesome there, if you are mindful, mindful, you will begin to notice it. And if you are mindful, you will begin to recognize what it is about it that, that makes it unwholesome, the consequences. Because the difference between what's wholesome and unwholesome is in its consequences. An unwholesome one makes me feel bad, it might make you feel bad, it, it produces bad results. Right? And that's what makes it unwholesome. So with mindfulness, we start to see the unwholesome aspects that are there. And we, by recognizing them as they really are, then the mind says, oh, wait a minute, this isn't serving me. I don't need this anymore. Maybe we can do things differently in the future. And it begins to change in that way. And I know, I know quite a few of you have already discovered this. You've been doing this, and you've already found that happens. 
right? But just by simply, you, you don't have to force yourself not to have unwholesome mental states or emotions. All you have to do is, is flood your mind with that clear, bright, mindful awareness of what this is really all about. And it begins to resolve itself. So, of course, it won't work if you don't remember to be mindful. And that is the problem. And this takes us right back to, you know, all the wonderful things that we could say about meditation. But they won't happen if, when you sit down, your mind keeps taking a side trip and it doesn't come back for 10 or 15 minutes. You know, it's exactly the same problem with exactly the same solution. And learning to solve the one problem, how can I continue to be aware of my breath, is training your mind in exactly what's necessary in order to solve the other problem and to remember to be mindfulness. If you can remember to stay with the breath, you can remember to be mindful. If you can come to the place where you sit for an hour and you never forget the breath, you can also come to a place where in the course of your life, you almost never forget to notice what's going on in your life. These are all quite possible. And the same thing, if you can come to the place in your meditation where you see your meditation object with brilliant clarity, you can also come to the place where your mindfulness in your daily life is one of brilliant clarity. So, you know, they mirror each other, they support each other, they reflect exactly the same mental processes that need to be cultivated to produce the result. And really, meditation is sort of like the, the highly controlled laboratory in which you get to discover and learn and, and, and train these things. You're welcome. Thank you for that inspiring question. And uh, Rose, I hope that answered your question earlier. <laughs> well, uh, I'm happy to take, uh, if, if anything that I talked about had raised some other question in your mind that you'd like to have clarification, yes, to you. Yeah, I just want to clarify, so when you say that it's anger arising, Mm-hmm. And then you make a new story that it's important to keep the I out of it because there is no I, right? So you can't, the minute you latch on, as I understand you say, like, I am angry or I am this, then the party's over, <laughs> unless you can switch it. Um, yeah, well, for, for the moment, the party is over. And it has to do with every part of the story. You know, you don't need to know the story behind why anger happened to arise in, in this circumstance. You don't need to get into, oh, it's because my mother always blah, blah, blah. That doesn't matter either. The most important thing is that, oh, this is anger arising. You see it as objectively. This is something my mind is producing. And yes, if I go in there, there is a story behind it. But you don't really need the story. Well, I mean, there are some stories, sometimes these things are a bit complicated and tangled up. So sometimes you might need to do a little bit of unraveling of the story. Some things masquerade as anger and they're really fear. And you have to unravel that before you can really finish the process. But 
most of the time, the story isn't that important. It's not nearly as important as just the clear singing. Well, could you do the same thing with any emotion? Could you do it with fear, or do you have to? You know, it's, yes, I guess. I, over and over again, I fall back on anger for the simple reason that it has, in terms of these discussions, everybody experiences it, and most people are more comfortable with accepting in discussion with others that they have anger, because we all know each other do. But a lot of the other unwholesome uh, emotions, uh, emotions and mental states we have uh, are a little bit more touchy for some people. It applies to them all. If fear, lust, greed, you know, uh, insecurity, anxiety, uh, lack of self-esteem, uh, all of these obviously unwholesome emotional states, they are all exactly the same thing. And they respond exactly the same way to mindfulness. And a very good point to make here, it's not just the unwholesome ones. If you're practicing mindfulness all the time, you're noticing the wholesome ones too. And it's really good to provide your mind with the feedback of how it feels to do something for somebody else. Or any of the other wholesome mental states, loving kindness, generosity, compassion, uh, protection, uh, you name it. All of the wholesome mental states, if they are examined with mindfulness, then the same feedback is provided that, hey, you know, this is really a good thing to do, and we should do more of it. This is, this is all the little voices and the mysterious unconscious part of your mind saying, saying, hey, you know, giving stuff away really isn't such a bad deal after all. <laughs> kind of makes us feel good, you know, and we ought to try that a little more. So it works for everything. All of your emotions and all of your mental states we could talk about this in terms of your brain and us being uh, biological organisms that have evolved. And all of our emotional equipment is exactly the same as all kinds of other animals. You, know, you have to go quite ways back in, in the evolutionary tree to find where they don't have very much the same emotional uh, brain equipment that we do. What they don't have is all of the uh, intelligence and understanding and critical judgment and the ability to to plan for the future and see future consequences. So really what we're doing is we come into this world with a very powerful but very primitive apparatus to make us react in certain ways that over the course of evolution have been beneficial to survival and reproduction. On the average. I mean, it's very powerful, but it's very crude. And the way evolution works is on average. It only has to be good for 51% of the organisms that have this mechanism for it to succeed and continue. And Mother Nature doesn't care that much about the other whatever percentage it is. As long as it's below 50%, it doesn't matter, it works. And this is a crude mechanism. It, our emotions do not exist for our personal benefit. They exist for the benefit of the perpetuation of our species and in a larger sense of perfect perpetuation of life. But we don't need them. It may be that lizards 
really, they couldn't function. They couldn't survive and reproduce because the only thing they have turning them on and off and making them go this way instead of that way is their emotions. They need them. We don't. We don't. And so we have a much more complex brain and we have a much more plastic brain. You can't really train lizards to do much. They come into this world with a set of programs and no matter how hard you try, you can't really change the lizard's programming to any great degree. We come into the world in a totally different way. We have the programs, but we have a very plastic brain, a very plastic mind, which we can reprogram. So that's another way of looking at the same thing. I don't know how Buddha figured this all out 2,500 years ago, but he did. He recognized these basic facts. So however you want to look at it from a, from a materialistic, biological, evolutionary point of view, or any other point of view, it comes down to the same thing. You can't change the way you are. All of your emotions and all of your mental states are produced by mental processes, mental mechanisms whose function it is to produce that. Happiness is, it's, it's a thing, it's, it's a construct of the mind. It's manufactured and delivered when the right signals arise. So all we want to do is reprogram all those unconscious parts using the conscious part so that we change the kind of being that we are. Does that increase in the percentage? In other words, does the the unconscious part become smaller and the conscious part become larger? Yes, that's one of the amazing things that happens. We become more and more conscious uh, in in developing what we're calling mindfulness or fully conscious awareness. Our we ordinarily barely tap our capacity for that. It is much greater. And the other thing is that we rarely turn it inward. We rarely turn it introspectively. And so we can learn to, to be more introspective, but we also greatly increase the power of, of that conscious awareness, which means more of what's going on and a deeper understanding of what's going on becomes exposed to the light of consciousness. Of course, the more that it's exposed to the light of consciousness, the bigger effect it has on that remaining part that is still unconscious. And the other thing is that, uh, to me, you know, we have higher, we, we, we have uh, in our language this terminology of higher states of consciousness. Introspective awareness is a higher state of consciousness than object awareness. But you know what I mean by these two terms? Object awareness, we're focused on this thing. And this, uh, consciousness is filled with the thing. But we can be aware of our mind 
It's like stepping up to a higher level. So you have a consciousness that sees the mind being aware of this thing, sees the qualities of that awareness as it changes, sees the other factors that are influencing it. There's a constant dynamic. That's what you find when you meditate. As soon as you can stay with the meditation object, you find, ooh, there are all sorts of thoughts and feelings and stuff there kind of floating around in the background. And every now and then something comes in and has a big impact. Well, that, what you're saying in meditation, that's the nature of our, our conscious awareness. And as you go to a higher level, so you're, you're, you're kind of seeing what's going on. So it is both a, so you can expand the amount of what you are aware of, but you can also learn to practice a higher state of consciousness. And then there's another sense in which we can speak of a higher state of consciousness too, and also related to this, and it has to do with the clarity aspect. The way things really are is right in front of us all the time. And the only reason we don't see things the way they really are is our mind creates this movie with all its fictional things that's in the way, you know, and as long as that's happening, you can't see what's behind that. So a higher state of consciousness is one that can penetrate through the mind-made illusions and to see what the ultimate reality behind that is. That ultimate reality, when it is finally seen, uh, it solves most of the problems. When you realize that there is no self generating these intentions, and there is no self having these experiences, uh, the important thing is the answer to the question of, okay, if there's no self, then what is there? And self is separation, and what is there is oneness, undifferentiated, infinite potential, but empty of all of the appearances that mind creates. And we are all that one. All of the Buddhas and all of the sentient beings are that same oneness. And that's the truth that we want to see. And when you can see that truth, it makes it really easy to let go of the self. <laughs> you realize, okay, anger, selfhood, all these things that the brain makes, they're useful, some of them are fun, some of them are no fun at all. But they're just things that the brain makes, that the mind makes. And you don't need to be attached to self anymore. You don't need to feel alone or alienated. You don't need to feel to fear uh, what will eventually happen to the body and uh, the mind that the body has generated. Enough of my yammering away. We need to meditate. Right? <laughs>